Kalani, welcome. My name's Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people in Canberra. Welcome to Thursdays at 3, our regular series of conversations with people living and working at the end of life. Today we meet Professor Dorothy Keefe. You might already know Dorothy as the CEO of Cancer Australia, the Australian Government's Cancer Care Agency. Welcome Dorothy, thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. And I'm joining you from the uh, lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. In Sydney? In Sydney. Lovely. Thank you for acknowledging country. Dorothy, let me fill in some of the gaps around that, that introduction. You've been the CEO of Cancer Australia since 2019. Before that, you were the Professor of Cancer Medicine at the University of Adelaide and Senior Medical Oncologist at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. In addition to your work as a medical oncologist, you're an expert in toxicity of cancer treatments, and you've been a tireless advocate for cancer patients and health reform. Not to mention this September in Sydney, you'll be one of our presenters at the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference. Thanks again for your time today. Let's dive straight into your presentation at OPCC. It's titled, The Cancer Plan and Palliative Care. Let's start with some background on the cancer plan. What are we talking about, Dorothy? Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for that introduction. We're talking about Australia's first ever national cancer plan. It's for all cancers in all Australians. And uh, when we talk about people affected by cancer, we're talking about the person with the cancer and their chosen support group, be that a partner or a family or a community, depending on, on who they are. And we want, uh, this is the first time Australia's ever had a national plan. And the reason for having a national plan is that because we're a federation, there are certain things that individual states can do and there are certain things they can't. There are some things that are better done as a, a whole country than done by the individual jurisdictions. And I was delighted to be asked to develop this plan um, in order to improve cancer outcomes for all Australians. Mm -hmm. The role of um, community is really interesting in what you just talked about there with, with the, the cancer plan and empowering community by the sound of things to, to be active in, in supporting people's cancer journey. Does that come from the fact that we, I guess the, the pressures on the health system are just, just so great and, and will increasingly be great into the future? The role that the community can play is, I guess, great for the patient, but also great for the health system as well. Am, am I on the right track? Look, it's a very interesting angle. It's not actually the main one, but let me explore it with you because it is really interesting. We have learned over many decades that healthcare works best if you do involve the people who are actually participating in it, as opposed to a dictatorial, we know best attitude. Yeah. And so yeah. um, what we've done with the plan is we have said to everyone in Australia, what do you think needs to be in this plan? what would make things better. In Australia, we have some of the best cancer outcomes in the world, but that works if you're white, middle-class and live in the city, mm -hmm. okay? And, and everyone understands what I mean by that. It means that the further away you are from the centre, the worse your outcomes are, the lower socioeconomic groups have worse outcome, culturally linguistically diverse, people from um, cold origins have a worse outcome. And, you know, the worst thing in Australia is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have worse cancer outcomes than non-Indigenous people. And so if we want to make improvements, we have to make improvements in those areas. And, you know, 
if I were going to have cancer treatment, I would go by myself or possibly take my husband, although I probably even wouldn't take him. Um, many people would take, you know, a friend or a brother or a sister or a carer. Um, but people from um, other um, groups would take more people. I mean, I remember as a medical oncologist, sometimes, you know, six or seven or eight people would come with yes. a family from a non um sort of Eurocentric background, and I'd be quite surprised. And, and in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, it's actually the whole community's responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we're switching our thinking. We know that if it works for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it works for everybody. So why don't we focus on making it work there and watch what happens? Yeah. The um, relationships between, I guess, cancer care and palliative care are strong and, and, and well known. What is it with the cancer plan and palliative care that you're keen to, to I guess, uh, better support or, or what do you want people to know at OPCC about palliative care and the cancer plan? That's a really good question. So as you know, palliative care originated out of cancer care. You know, mm -hmm. it was the, the Dame Cecily Saunders and the movement was all about uh, looking after people that we couldn't cure of cancer and who were dying of cancer and in pain and in distress. Now, obviously, it's got a lot bigger than that now, and um, palliative care sees itself as as looking after anyone at end of life or or towards the end of life. I don't. I'm not. I'm not defining it in end of life terms, but I am saying it's grown. It's grown both in uh, breadth and in length. So it's grown in breadth outside of cancer and it's grown in length in that it is introduced earlier in the cancer journey. Mm -hmm. But the majority of palliative care patients and work probably in Australia and in many other countries still comes from cancer. Mm -hmm. And if you flip it around the other way, anyone who is dying of cancer needs palliative care. So, so we have 100% of patients whose cancer leads to end of life requiring palliative care. So it's an integral part of cancer. If, if when we talk about cancer, the cancer plan, the cancer journey, I'm not so keen on that term, but you know, the cancer journey, it starts at prevention, early detection, and it ends at survivorship or um, recurrent disease and relapse and end of life care. So for me, it's absolutely vital that palliative care is included in the Australian Cancer Plan, or we're letting our consumers down. We're, I want to, I, well, I want, I have a vision that we have um, a seamless system that everybody uh, is cared for properly when and where they want to be cared for, and they have access to whatever they need, and they get the world's best cancer outcomes, but there will still be some people whose cancer leads to their death. Mm -hmm. And I want those people to feel cared for and looked after and linked in the same way that everybody else is. And so if we don't have palliative care integrated, we put these roadblocks or these great chasms in the road really, rather than blocks which people fall into and, and they don't get looked after properly. It's not good enough to give people good cancer treatment. We have to look after them properly. Mm -hmm. 
Dorothy, one of the points you mentioned there, and I think at the heart of what you're talking about is that around that, that early integration of palliative care into someone's cancer story. What benefits have you seen? Because often I think someone who's perhaps undergoing cancer treatment, they get the referral to palliative care, and there's that sort of very human reaction um, when someone gets a, a referral to palliative care. What, I'm, I'm dying? There's that assumption that a palliative care referral means you're going to die in the next couple of weeks. What impacts, what, what uh, positives have you seen around that, that early integration of palliative care into, into someone's treatment? So you've gone straight to one of the really knotty problems in, in cancer and palliative care. In my view, and this is a view that's held quite widely in the sort of oncology and supportive care community, palliative care should begin at the time the disease is, in, is known to be incurable. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm very specifically saying it's not to be introduced on a routine basis for someone who's got a curable cancer because the oncologists and the system should be looking after that person, looking after their acute toxicities of treatment. It's a different focus. But once the disease has been diagnosed to be incurable, firstly, that does not mean you're going to die next week, which is, as you say, exactly. So one of the first things I say to people when I see them with a cancer is, you're not about to die unless you get run over by a truck, you know? Um, <laughs> And, and that makes them laugh, which is good. And that starts that communication yeah. relationship, which is the most important thing in, a, in a, an oncologist's life, really. Um, but once the disease is incurable, there's a, a phase of months to years before you get to end of life where palliative care has things to offer. Mm -hmm. And so it's about having that conversation with the patient about what palliative care means and what end of life care means and, and how long you can stretch out that bit in between. So the, the uh, positives of introducing palliative care at that point are to deal with any of the symptoms of the, the cancer. Um, and I mean, in the broader sense of the word, physical, psychological, social, spiritual, mm -hmm or the whole breadth, and if I've missed any out, just include them. You know, it's anything to do um, yes. with having a life-limiting illness. Of course, the problem is that in many jurisdictions around the world, it's not possible to introduce palliative care at that stage because there's not enough resourcing. So you have mm -hmm. to quarantine it for when it's absolutely vital and the only thing that will happen. So, you know, in some of our low- and middle-income country um, neighbours, it really does have to be reserved for end of life. And palliative care is fabulous at end of life, best thing. But in that in that area in between, in a country such as ours, you should be able to provide some other supports in the intervening time between diagnosis of incurable disease and entering the end of life phase. And at that point, it improves quality of life. It probably improves quantity of life, although there's a little bit that depends on what sort of health system you're in. Um, but if we've got the ability to do it and the resources, we should be providing that care. Dorothy, let's go back to the very beginning. Where does your passion come from? As a, as a, as a young doctor, why the move into cancer? Why the move into, into, into palliative care? Uh, where does that fire come from? For many people working in our sector, there's that that personal story, that personal connection. Where does your passion for this come from? 
Well, it's interesting. It, it, it had a start, but it gets boosted on the way too. Um, so, so the very beginning, um, I didn't know what I, what area I wanted to go in medicine. I knew I wanted to be a physician, but I didn't know what sort of a physician. And I hadn't really done much oncology during my medical school training in London. But when I moved to Adelaide, I uh, did a job um, in haematology oncology at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And I just fell in love with it. You know, there's something about knowing when you've reached home. So for me, I describe it as I'd come onto the ward and I loved the patients and the patients liked me as well. So that there was this instant rapport. And I love the fact that in oncology uh, and in supportive care and in palliative care, you can't just be a cold clinician. I know, you know, we're not cold clinicians, but, you, but there's a in some specialties, there yeah. is a temptation to be, you know, you do all the clinical stuff, you, you don't share any of yourself, it's all black and white, mm -hmm. and then you go home. So in oncology, you have to share a bit about yourself. You're, you're with people at the most vulnerable stages mm -hmm. of their life, which is an absolute privilege. You hear things about um, people's lives and people's circumstances that you wouldn't hear any other way. And I just loved that, loved the sharing, loved the, um, the talking, um, loved, in fact, the realisation that you could be on this journey for the rest of the patient's life, that, that you weren't just having that one-off transactional uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. you know, and we tell stories in oncology, and I used to tell my patients the story that if they, you know, if I treated them in an adjuvant setting and we thought they might be cured and they went away, then they came back a couple of years later with a, a relapse or occurrence. And I'd say, I'm afraid you're stuck with me for life now. Because that meant I was with them holding their hand side by side. Yeah. And it was that that I loved. It's the communication, it's the sharing. Um, but again, on the way through, you have events where some interaction with a patient makes you realize all over again why you love what you do. Mm -hmm. As you say, as, as an oncologist, you're working with people perhaps at the most vulnerable part of their life. What influence does that have on your, your personal life? What does is, what is death or facing death teach, teach you or taught you about life? Well, of course, oncologists as a, as a group have a different view on life and death than most other people because we see death all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so... It, I mean, my attitude to aging, for example, is every birthday is to be celebrated because it beats the alternative. Yes. Um, so, you know, I have a, a slightly different view of mortality, I suppose. Um, and I just, uh, yes, I suppose I think that I think more about how people die than maybe most people do. Um, the the thinking that you do about what sort of a death you'd like to have again having the privilege to have watched so many people die uh, that sounds bizarre but it is a privilege to what yeah. to be with people when they die um some people do it brilliantly you know the the fabulous woman who held a life celebration about three or four weeks before she died at the adelaide oval and invited everybody you know it was 
and had a she had a, a marquee with with pictures of her whole life spread out, and you know a bouncy castle for the kids and food and drummers and a real celebration of life. And then there are very sadly at the other end people who just turn their turn their face to the wall mm-hmm. and die because you know and don't speak to everyone and all those things. So you you know you have that that view of of what happens and then you're able to think about your own death um i suppose participate and that sounds you know be present for people yes. when they die in a, in yes. a different way which is which is lovely and to be able to actually talk about death and dying i think that's one of the greatest things I've learned in my career is that mm-hmm. I am not afraid to talk to someone about death and dying. Both my own parents died of cancer and um, the conversations we had as they were dying were just such a privilege. Yeah. And, you know, I have lots of brothers and sisters and they couldn't have those conversations. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I know how lucky I am to be let into that area yeah. of, of people's lives. As you say, a privilege. Mm. Dorothy, I'm keen to know more about your work around the toxicity of cancer treatments. And it's it's perhaps a bit of the the black humour that, that perhaps goes with, with cancer and palliative care and, and end of life. But often with, with cancer treatments, there's that black humour around you need to get sicker before you can get better. Well, I don't believe that. Okay. Uh, so, okay so, I knew you were the person for this question. Yes. So, okay. So my my um, research interest was initially uh, gut toxicity, GI toxicity, diarrhea. I mean, talk about, you know, bad humour. Uh, diarrhea yeah. from cancer treatment. And then that spread into whole gut, so mouth and gut mm-hmm. toxicity, and then into more broad um, symptom management. So it's true, you know, 40 years ago, we used to think that, um, well, that was before my time in cancer, but, you know, the the prevailing thought was that you had to suffer for your cure. Now, that's actually a very negative way to look at things. And so, um, you know, this movement of supportive care in cancer, probably in parallel with palliative care, sort of said, no, why should people have to suffer to be cured, surely we could find a way to remove the toxicity of a drug without um, reducing the action of a drug. When I started in my research career, I was almost apologetic about uh, researching supportive care because it wasn't thought to be central to curing cancer. Now, if you fast forward 30 years, it's the center of the whole cancer universe. I mean, to look after people when we asked people in the, you know, we asked everyone in the Australian Cancer Plan, um, the whole the whole community in Australia, what do you want? And and actually, I can summarise that in three things. They want any cancer to be detected early, prevented or detected early. They want the world's best anti-cancer treatment, and they want to be looked after. And if you can't cure them, they want to be looked after even more. Yeah. And so. You know, my I'm now unashamedly promoting the fact that supportive care in cancer and good palliative care are the most important things that we can do. If we can't do anything else, we can look after people in a humane manner and re- relieve their suffering. Mm-hmm. What do you hope 
government takes out of the the cancer plan and the, the, the work you've just pointed to? What's the message for, for government and what they need to do on the back of the cancer plan? Well, of course, Cancer Australia is government, so yeah. I'm <laughs> slightly yeah. myself. Um, what we need to do is do what the patients are asking us for. And they're asking to be this, they're asking to be listened to, they're asked to, asking to be the centre of the care, and they're asking that the care be the best it can be and joined up properly. So the the sort of um, and that everyone have a fair go at getting the best outcome. Mm -hmm. So so for us, you know, I know this isn't the palliative care bit, but you know, prevention, early detection, and screening are really important. And it's fabulous that the government is now funding the National Lung Cancer Screening Program because that will save lives, considerable numbers of lives, um, for people with lung cancer. Then we want the world's best treatments, which are underpinned by research and data. We need the hospital system and the whole healthcare system humming in and connected. You know, it's that joined up care. So you know, there are there can be pockets of brilliance, but if they're not joined up, the patient still suffers. So we, you know, it's sort of a, a joined up system with good navigation to help people find their way through. The machinery of of the healthcare system, um, excellent supportive care, survivorship care, palliative care, for when you you know when things go wrong or when you can't um, cure people, and that we really focus on those who are disadvantaged in our system. Dorothy, we've only had time to to touch on little snippets of your your work and wisdom, and there'll be there'll be more time to explore your work and wisdom and indeed the cancer plan at the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference this September in Sydney. OPCC, what are you looking forward to? This is the biggest palliative care conference in the Southern Hemisphere. You go to this stuff all the time. What are you looking forward to or what do you look forward to from these sorts of experiences? Well, I think, again, it's all about communication mm -hmm. and uh, we learn from each other well and hearing people's experiences is unbeatable. You know, so having, hearing from people who've um, looked after people in the palliative care setting, hearing from consumers, hearing from people working in the field and what the difficulties are, that's unbeatable. Because, yeah. you know, especially as I don't, I, I very rarely do any clinical work now. I do a bit of teaching still, but my clinical work I've pretty much stopped. So I need to be in touch with the people on the ground because I need to know what the issues are. It's, mm -hmm. I don't ever want to be making policy without practicality, really. So um, I'm looking forward to learning from all of the other people about what works, what doesn't work, what the thinking is. You know, sometimes something really, it's some corridor conversation you have over yes. morning tea sets you off in a new direction that enables something fabulous to happen. And that's what I'm looking forward to, as well as seeing all those wonderful people who work in the area. There's mm -hmm. something special about people who work in palliative care. And so I'll be really looking forward to seeing all my palliative care friends. You bring such weight to our IPCC program and indeed all those corridor conversations that are so valuable that you point to as, as well. Thank you so much for your time today, Dorothy. We'll see you in Sydney. My absolute pleasure. Can't wait.
Professor Dorothy Keefe there. You'll see her again at the Oceanic Palliative Care Conference this September in Sydney. Registrations are open now and I'll include a link in the show notes. And thank you to you for tuning into Thursdays at 3, whether that's via PCA socials or Spotify and engaging with matters of life and death. You'll find more advice, tools and support at the Palliative Care Australia website where you can also make a donation to support our work. See you next Thursday. Thank you.